Um, and I will do my best not to preach right now because it is not my turn to preach this morning. We get a special treat this morning. Um, and if you didn't see on your way coming in, there's a, a table, some information coming your way. Uh, but I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time. I got to meet Seth Gruber several months ago um, at a pastor's breakfast, and I knew I wanted him to come share at our church. And then just a few weeks ago, I got to hear him speak at a big conference, a Love Life conference. And um, while we were there, he did a great job of partnering with another ministry called Called Love Life. And um, I want to officially announce to you for the first time publicly that we um, have registered to become a house of refuge in partnership with Love Life. And what does that mean? Let me read you a statement because this is part of what I signed up to do is that I will read this minimum once a year to remind ourselves who we are and what we're partnering with. So I'm going to read you a statement of who we are and what we're partnering to do. It says this, Osborne Neighborhood Church is a house of refuge. This applies to everyone in this church or people you know that need a place of refuge. Here's what we believe. If you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, please know that being pregnant is not a sin. And the child you carry is not a punishment. It is a blessing. God is knitting this child in your womb. You may have made a sinful decision that led to this pregnancy, or you may have been sinned against. But we want you to know you are loved. And we will do whatever it takes to help you carry and care for this precious child before and after birth. We can never support or encourage a woman to have an abortion because the child you carry is made in the image of God and is intrinsically valuable and loved by God. You need to know how we will respond. Here's what we won't do. The church family will not gossip about you, shame you, or abandon you. This is a house of refuge, and we will not allow for the family of God to harm one another with words or actions contrary to the love of God as revealed in his word. Here's what we will do. We will do everything in our power to remove whatever obstacles stand in the way of you having this child. There are people in this church ready to mentor you, throw you a baby shower, and connect you with resources inside and outside of our church. We will also hold men accountable for living out their calling to provide and protect women and children. Finally, if you've ever had an abortion in your past, we want you to know that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. If you have never never gone through a post-abortion Bible study, we will be happy to connect you to one so that you can walk in complete healing and freedom. That is who we are and committed to being. I was talking to another leader before service starts, and they're saying, Pastor, you know, out of all the different causes that there are in the world, you seem to pick on this one a lot, this idea of abortion. And I said, yeah, you know why? Because I said, I have decided this is a hill I'm willing to die on. There are so many things that maybe are politicized, but this is not a political issue. This is a right and wrong life and death issue. And so this is so dear to my heart is that we as a church not only believe in life and speak life and promote life, but as you know, our vision for this year that I I cast as we started in January, right, is that we are to prepare our hearts and minds for action. 
that I don't want to just be a church that believes good things. I want us to actually do good things. And so that's what I'm excited about today is you're going to hear all kinds of resources. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to give a chance to have Danielle come up and share, but you will get to see her in the foyer with Turning Point USA Faith. And she is filled with resources for your family, for this church, uh, for friends and neighbors, that if you want information of how to live a godly life that actually impacts your world, your community, uh, yes, even politics. All these things, we should have an effect. And I love the history, right? You know that we celebrate our Independence Day really big here at Osborne. I love the forefathers and all the history of our nation. And so there's things that maybe our next generation is being taught differently in a public school that isn't truth. And so there's all kinds of resources of just giving truth and information that are available to you today. And I just want to make sure you are hearing all these things. Um, but enough of me preaching. I want to um, introduce to you, again, um, you can go to his website. You can hear him on podcasts. You can hear him all over the place. Um, he is a world-renowned speaker. And I love, I was just sharing, I actually am jealous, Seth. I wish sometimes... Being a pastor, I have to be like a business manager. I have to go visit people in hospitals. I have to go do so many different hats. I was like, I wonder what it'd be like for full time just to work on my speaking and actually just craft my message. And it would only be on one sermon. And I could go around the world giving one sermon. Like, oh, my gosh, I would hone in on that. And I would love that. And so I love that God has blessed, has anointed, and called Seth to this specific cause and that he has a voice that needs to be heard, and that needs to impact us. What I love about him is he's unafraid and unashamed to provoke us into action. I know the first time I heard him speak, there were some things he said that I might have said in a different fashion. I said, ooh, I said, but I like it. I like it because you know what? Jesus was never afraid to offend people's minds because his desire was to reveal heart. And so for me, I actually hope, I've been praying all week long, that some of you get your thoughts provoked and actually offended. I'm willing to die on this hill. I'm willing for this church to be labeled like John the Baptist. Man, you just preach hellfire and brimstone. Sure, if, that's what it t- if you want to label us that way, sure. Or if you want to label us as this loving church that we just love sinners, I'll take any accusation you want to throw my way. But I am believing and I'm preaching before he preaches, that before revival can really hit this nation, this is the central theme. We've got to get this right. The church has got to get this right and die on this hill. And so I'm excited to have Seth come. And yeah, give Seth Gruber a round of applause as he comes up and shares a good word with us this morning. So thank you, Seth. Good morning. How are you? Awesome. You guys are, uh, I don't know if the word's feisty or fired up or something like that, but amen. It's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. It really is. Speaking of breathing fresh air, um, I had a, you know, a little <clears throat> last night, um, so I was like, maybe I shouldn't come, but don't worry. I spoke with Eric Garcetti, and he just told me to hold my breath the whole time. <laughs> so, so we're good to go. I've been exercising holding my breath. Um, I'm really committed to following the science. Um, so, yeah, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what following the science means um, and how I would like to ban that term from American political discourse. Um, but nowhere is that actually more true than the issue of abortion, um, because science, you see, is a sticker that the secular progressive movement and the abortion industrial complex slaps over their bigotry to disguise their true agenda 
and keep the American populace in confusion. Because you, Rubes, you don't understand the data and the science and the studies. Um, and of course, nearly everyone ruining the country right now through vaccine mandates, through masking two-year-olds, uh, while every Democrat politician doesn't wear the face diaper when he's taking pictures with children, um, through the suicidality, which is out the window right now with young people. I could go down and down the line. Guess what? All the people currently behind all of those policies and ruining, yeah, yeah guess what? They're all pro-abortion. Oh, I'm sure that's a coinkadink, right? I'm sure that's just totally coincidental. There's no relationship whatsoever, philosophically or ideologically or politically, guys, between people who believe that a whole class of human beings are not persons, taking a page out of uh, 1850 Democrat playbooks, um, and those who would be willing to attack every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. There's no relationships there, okay? Uh, censored. You know, fake news. Well, speaking of fake news, do you know who famously defined fake news? His name was Joseph Goebbels. He was the Nazi propagandist. And he spoke to the power of using language to upend society, using language to sort of soften the reality of the agenda that you were really pitching. So with abortion, genocide or womb lynchings or feticide or child sacrifice, you see it becomes reproductive health care and reproductive justice. And this is actually nothing new, but unfortunately, um, the church and the people are just as prone to go along to get along and accept the redefinition of terms and language in order to avoid getting uncomfortable and having to stand up for rights, for your neighbor's rights, for the least of these. But here's what Joseph Goebbels said. He said, if you tell a lie big enough, you can actually get people to believe it by saying it over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And so he says that um, it, thus becomes, uh, it thus becomes important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent. For truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus by extension, truth is the greatest enemy of the state when he defined fake news, the Nazi propaganda, saying like, we know we're lying, but if we just keep saying it over and over again and repressing the voices that speak to an alternative view of the world, then we can actually pull off our political project. Okay, so none of this is new. The reason I wanted to frame it beginning with that is that nowhere is that more sort of evident, I would say, than on the issue of abortion. The left has been using language to to pitch their political project on the issue of abortion for decades. And they have been doubling and tripling down on this agenda. Well, those who should be speaking with a prophetic voice in the culture to an alternative view of the world, to why human beings have natural rights, where these natural rights come from, God himself, and a hierarchy of rights, to quote our founders, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I wonder why they put the right to life first. These hierarchy and order of rights ought to be the church, ought to be the bride of Christ. And so, to quote Randy Alcorn, we shake our heads in disgust at the German church's tolerance of one holocaust while ignoring our own tolerance of another. We have been sowing apathy in the womb, and now we're reaping it in the streets. We've been sowing bloodshed in the womb, and now we're reaping it in the streets. Yes, I believe that there are many important issues happening in the country today and in the world, and the church ought to be speaking life and liberty and standing in the public square in the culture of death with a big sign that says, stop, you will go no further. 
But if we don't get this right right, we're not going to get any other rights right. Now, that doesn't mean that you should leave any other issues or causes that God has called you to. I believe you should be faithful to wherever he's called you. However, it does mean that if we continue to contend for liberty and rights for our born neighbors while allowing tyranny in the womb, it is only a matter of time until every other right that we have seemingly taken for granted in this republic will begin to deteriorate as well. And you watched this play out in real time in 2020, didn't you? In 2021. <laughs> Democrat mayors and governors, let's just name the political party, okay, I don't care anymore. You can go tell Ryan to not invite me back, all right? This is literally Satan's party. It is the party of Molech, all right? It is the party of abortion and infanticide. Seth, does that mean that the G are you saying the GOP is Jesus' party? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that therefore the other party is perfect and has no sinners in it. I'm just saying that the Democrat party is the party of abortion and infanticide. And the mayors and governors of that party during 2020 shut down the world and told you you didn't have the liberty to gather and to worship and to sing and to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment and to evaluate your own level of risk unless you're dining at the French Laundry with Governor Gavin Newsom. But I digress. What happened to our natural right to liberty? What happened to it? You remember Newsom in California, he said, no singing in churches. Do you remember that, <laughs> that one? He's like, stop singing, Christians. Stop it. But then when BLM and Antifa marched through the streets of Hollywood and L.A., and they opened up their hymnal book, the hymnal book of the religion of secular progressivism. And how does that first hymn go in that, in that, that hymn book? Um, America sucks. Burn it down. And when they sang their liturgy and they contended for their religious beliefs in the public square, every public health official and major Democrat leader not only didn't condemn those super spreaders and those huge gatherings, they actually all came out in support of them. And they said, you know what, systemic racism is also a public health crisis, as is COVID, so this whole gathering is fine. It's totally chill. We have no problems with it. And you had Eric Garcetti and Gavin Newsom actually thanking the mostly peaceful but somewhat fiery protesters for bringing awareness to systemic racism. Of course, abortion is the greatest example today of systemic racism because 3.5% of the American public, black women of childbearing age, obtain 37 to 40% of the annual abortions. That's a great deal for the abortion industry. 3.5% giving them 40% of their income. They'll take that any day. Of course, they, so they don't actually mean systemic racism. They just mean whatever they can use it to mean through language to get what they want from you and to keep the church silent. Right, the church silent. Because who have communist regimes always gone after first? The church, you got to silence those freaking Christians. So Newsom, ironically, or not ironically, historically, says, hey, secular progressive religion, come sing your liturgy in the streets of Hollywood and burn down majority black-owned businesses? Yes, but Christians gathering at 50% capacity in their congregations? You're granny killers. You're granny killers. Remember, that's what they said. You're super spreaders. Don't sing. So what happened? COVID got woke. The virus mutated to only target religious conservatives. No, I, I know it's hard to understand because you're not woke. But no, that's literally what happened. So in this church at 50% capacity, you were very danger, dangerous Christians. Oh, you, you were domestic terrorists, says uh, Attorney General of the United States of America when you go speak at school boards, right? Uh, Merrick Garland, who's pissed off because he didn't get on the Supreme Court <laughs> under Obama, right? Oh, but if you march through the streets of LA in the thousands and you scream and you yell and the... And the spittle flies off your lips. 
It's not infectious, it's totally chill. It's the greatest political mutation of any virus we've ever seen. Okay, I, I know you're like, okay, what the heck? Why did you bring this guy to speak here? This is not about abortion. No, I need you to actually understand this. I'm, I'm actually connecting all of these dots for you. The, the deterioration of our liberty is because of our refusal to protect the unborn child. Nearly every issue that we're facing in the country and in the world right now goes right back to the church's failure to contend for life in the womb. And, you know, Ronald Reagan understood this. Reagan, right, the governor of the once great state of California, right, Ryan? By the way, I'm a Southern California boy, uh, born and raised, born in Glendora, raised in uptown Whittier, California, homeschooled through eighth grade, went to Whittier High School, Nixon's alma mater, went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Never send your children or grandchildren to that university. We'll talk about that later. Lived in San Clemente for four years after I got married, and we moved to Godspeed Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks last January, not last month, the January before, because Pastor Rob McCoy, the pastor that America needs but doesn't deserve, kind of like Batman, said, move your family up here, start a pro-life ministry, I'll get you into every pulpit I can in California, give you carte blanche to run a pro-life ministry, have you preach at the church two days before the national election, give you a studio for your podcast, and let's take back spiritual ground in California. And I said, who are you? <laughs> so anyway, so I've been here for a long time, born and raised here. But of course, Reagan, many people don't know this, he used to be pro-choice. Do you guys know that? He actually signed legislation in California that actually led to the bloodshed of the unborn. He later regretted it, became pro-life, thanks to a woman named Dr. Mildred Jefferson. Dr. Mildred Jefferson is a, is a woman many people don't know of, of course, because she was a black pro-life conservative. <laughs> and nothing, you know, does the mainstream media hate more than that. That's why, they, that's why they called Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy in the LA Times. You remember that? <laughs> the black face of white supremacy. Yeah, oh, guess what? The Democrat Party is still racist. It's about ideological uniformity. And if you don't fit within their ideology, you will be cast out into the secular progressives' outer darkness, where there is also weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> Wake up, guys. At bottom, all of our political and moral disagreements are actually religious disagreements. Uh, to quote uh, Cardinal Manning, um, uh, at the end of the day, everything comes back to theological disputes. Um, because it forces you to answer the question, what is man? What is God? What is his relationship to God? What is man's relationship to the state? What are natural rights? Where do these rights come from? Which rights do we have inherently? Which rights are given to us by the state? These become fundamentally religious questions. And so Dr. Mildred Jefferson, who's been completely whitewashed and, uh, and had her legacy ignored by the mainstream media, was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School. She started the National Right to Life Committee, one of the largest pro-life organizations and one of the oldest ones in the country. She was contending against the abortion industrial complex, I call it, in New York, pre-Roe versus Wade, pre-1973, because she knew uh, the, the political actors that were involved in trying to get abortion legalized at the federal level, right? usurping the, the, Democrat, the, the democratic will of the people and forcing abortion onto all 50 states. And she once said that today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely to be the elderly and those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it may be anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order. Dr. Mildred Jefferson, she made a case for the pro-life position on national television. Reagan watched it. It so moved him. He wrote her a letter telling her that she had changed his mind from pro-choice to pro-life and shared his regret over the policy that he had already signed in California. It eventually led Reagan to write his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. 
right? Because Reagan understood that abortion really kind of does represent our national consciousness, doesn't it? I like to say that abortion sort of functions as a litmus test of the republic. It also functions as a litmus test of the church today. For if we put up with this type of evil, we're apathetic towards it, or worse yet, we're woke, we're wokey woke face pastors, like, and now excuse me, like Tim Keller, Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, Ed Stetzer, who give theological permission for Christians to vote for the very politicians who lynched their neighbors in the womb, then every other right and liberty that we take for granted will deteriorate as well. And those wokey woke pastors will simply be the last ones that the lion eats. They'll be the last ones that they come for. That's the thing about tyranny, is that you think that if you put up with tyranny, that somehow you'll be spared. Thomas Paine said this. He said, there are people who see not the full extent of the evil which threatens them. They solace themselves with the belief that the enemy, if he succeeds, will be merciful. It is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. So from a, a purely utilitarian standpoint, even if you're in here and you're pro-choice, I would say to you, you should want to end abortion because those who lynch the unborn in the womb will not hesitate to attack your natural rights as well. The other way to put that is if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And Reagan articulated this in his book, Abortion in the Conscience of a Nation. Here's what he said. This is powerful. Reagan says, Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land as long as some men could decide that others are not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, says Reagan, we cannot survive as a free country today as long as some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should therefore be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So there is no cause more important than affirming than the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. This is the fundamental number one moral issue of our day. Once again, hear me, if God has called you to fight sex trafficking, you tell me where, let's go beat up some pimps. You tell me where, let's rescue some women from these, from these degenerates. If you want to serve at soup kitchens, praise God, hallelujah. You're an international missionary, couldn't love it more. You're trying to, uh, you're trying to discredit and attack the transgender movement that has a sick, disgusting sexual obsession with our children. You tell me where and I'll show up and fight. I'm not saying that you need to abandon other causes or issues that God has called you to. I'm not saying that you need to leave all that and become a full-time pro-life activist. I'm merely saying that this is the number one moral issue of our day, and therefore we all have a role to play in ending it. And the longer we allow others to fight our battles for us, the sooner that that tyranny will come home for us as well. And I think we're seeing that escalation of tyranny in the last two years more so than any other time. Look what's happening in Canada right now in America's hat. People are being run over by horses because Justin Trudeau, a... Oh, y'all, this is called a soy boy, uh, you know, tyrannical wannabe, um, is utilizing all of the powers of, of his position in order to repress dissent. But he was bowing the knee with BLM as they were burning down cities in Canada. Once again, it was never about a consistent moral ethic. It was about power. And it was about repressing anyone who might cause a, um, who might compromise their political power. But so much of this goes back to abortion. So... I was at Westmont College. I started the pro-life club there as a freshman in 2010, 2011. It took me a full semester to find a faculty advisor to get my pro-life club approved. 
took me a full semester to find a faculty advisor at a Christian college whose motto is Christ preeminent in all things in order to get the first pro-life club ap uh, approved. Because too many of the faculty were like, oh, I don't want to touch that issue. And then I started learning that Westmont has hired a bunch of pro-abortion professors. <coughs> full on, pro-abortion. I know this because I had conversations with them. I could tell you their names. Let's see, uh, Dr. Omidi Ocheng, Dr. Deborah Dunn, uh, and there's this, uh, I'll remember their name, there's this couple there that are basically Marxists uh, who say they're Christians that teach there as well. Um, Dr. Scott Anderson, who supports legal abortion but thinks the church should just uh, save babies while we can, while we keep it legal. Um, and Dr. Gail Beebe, the president of the university, who told me in a meeting face-to-face -face when I asked him, Dr. Gail, why won't Westmont take a position on abortion? And he said, well, Seth, there's a lot of issues, and you can't expect us to take a position on all of them. So you see, for the academic elite, even within the church, they view abortion not as the number one moral issue of our day, not as the prerequisite issue, but it's one issue among many. But that would mean that the right to life is one right among many. But it's not one right among many. It's the prerequisite right that you have to secure. And so when you send your children to Westmont College, when you send them to Wheaton, okay, when you send them to Azusa Pacific University, okay, you are sending your children to Caesar and don't be surprised if they come back as Romans. Okay, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called syncretism. Syncretism is when you attach pagan ideologies to your faith, but you still masquerade it as Christianity. Don't worry, we're still really Christians. Now, a funny question to ask would be, do you think Westmont College would allow out-and-out -out racists who wanted to re-legalize the lynchings of blacks? Do you think they'd allow those professors to remain employed at Westmont College? Oh, no, no. They would be out of there. Gone. Done. No tolerance for that. Because it's a, if it's racism, we have no tolerance for that, apparently, in our society, unless you're lynching black unborn babies, and then the Democrat Party calls that reproductive health care. But if you believe the same thing, that not all humans are persons, and the state gets to decide the litmus test for personhood, who's in and out of the personhood family, and who gets rights and who doesn't, it's the same ideology, then you're welcome to have a job at Westmont College as long as you sign a statement of faith, which is completely meaningless as soon as you sign it, because you believe that we should be able to lynch children in the same location that your savior entered human history in, in order to redeem mankind from their sins. So if you're wondering why we have a crisis in evangelicalism, why... Vody Bauckham had to write a book called Fault Lines, The Looming Crisis in American Evangelicalism. It's because we've been sending our children to Caesar. And Caesar says he's a Christian, so don't worry, you can trust him. The reason the pro-life movement has largely not had the church on our side, because we don't usually have pastors like Ryan and, and Rob McCoy and Jack Hibbs and others who actually are willing to stand in the middle of the culture of death and contend for the rights of the unborn child. We haven't had the church on our side because we haven't had the pastors on our side, the shepherds. We haven't had the shepherds or pastors on our side because for the most part, the institutions where the shepherds and future pastors are being educated at to prepare for ministry believe that abortion is just one right among many. It's kind of a political issue. And Rick Warren told me to just preach the gospel and not get political. Um, and so because the institutions who are shaping and discipling the next generation of preachers view abortion that way, it should come as no surprise that the pastors view it that way and that we have more apathetic and silent churches, which is why Francis Schaeffer, yeah? Francis Schaeffer once said that every abortion center ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And he said shortly before his death, he said, if the church can't speak out against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. 
So ironically, when pastors say we don't preach on abortion because it's political and we don't want to compromise our gospel message, you're actually compromising your gospel message by not preaching on abortion. (laughs) Because how can you expect the atheist, post-Christian, secular society to give any ear to your message when they are hearing that you believe that your God entered human history in a uterus and identified with you at your most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage that your God took on fetal flesh, entered human history in a womb in order to redeem mankind from their sins. And you tell me, Christians, you tell me that every human being is created in the image of God, which means that your prenatal Jesus was being created in the image of God and knit together in their mother's womb, but the prenatal Jesus is God, so the prenatal Jesus is knitting himself together in the womb, while knitting the prenatal John the Baptist together in the womb, who's doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room, who's pregnant with God. (laughs) Incarnation. Blows your mind every time. You must not believe that, church. You must not believe that. There's no way you could believe that. Because they're murdering a million babies in the same location that your Savior entered human history in every year in this country, and your churches are silent. I don't have any respect for your gospel. Are you kidding me? compromising my Christian witness. Being silent on abortion compromises your Christian witness. (sighs) All right. (laughs) So now that you feel so encouraged with the political moment that we're in, (laughs) let me leave you with, with three things with the time that I'll have left. True believers must do three things to end the Holocaust of abortion. We must know what we believe. We must know what we're facing. And we must know what to do. Because... The number one response I get from Christian schools and churches when I speak or I do my apologetics trainings is, uh, Seth, I've never known what to say before. I've never known how to defend my beliefs beyond citing Psalm 139. Knit together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the dark of the earth. Yes, beautiful. But what does Psalm 139 mean to an atheist secular progressive who calls abortion a blessing of liberty? Well, not a lot. So if we don't know even what we believe and how to articulate it, right? We're not going to be confident to stand in the culture of death against this genocide, and we likely won't know actually what to do, as it seems that maybe it's too late to turn this American experiment around. It's very easy to get discouraged, so we need to return to those fundamental, foundational first principles. What do we believe? Well, we believe that all truth is God's truth, and because all truth is God's truth, God's truth tends to show up everywhere, doesn't it? So when, when pastors say things like, um, well, uh, Seth, you see, the reason I'm not going to let you um, preach in my pulpit is because I just speak where the Bible speaks and I'm silent where the Bible's silent. Um, and the word abortion is not in scripture. So I don't know how to preach on it. I mean, obviously, Jesus didn't you know, think about it that much. It's not in the scriptures. So um, that's why we're silent on it. Well, that assumes that the only objective truths that you can ascertain are in scripture. Is that true? No, not at all. Did you know the Bible doesn't condemn forced female circumcision? There's no commandments against forced female circumcision. I guess the church shouldn't speak out on that, guys, because you have to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. (laughs) Does anyone actually believe that? Of course not. There's no commandment against lynching homosexuals in the Bible, right, while they're doing that in countries all around the world, primarily Muslim countries, which the left loves to kowtow to and say how great they are while they literally lynch homosexuals. Once again, it was never about consistency. 
It was about ideological uniformity and power. Well, the Bible doesn't speak on that, so we can't speak on that, right? And then pastors say, well, no, Seth, you see, the Bible provides us with the spiritual foundation and worldview on which to establish spiritual clarity on a whole range of moral issues. Right. Now do abortion. So we can know that abortion is wrong, and we can make a case for the objectively true pro-life position with and without citing Bible verses to make our case. There were many abolitionists who weren't Christians. Did you know this? Sometimes Christians like to pretend like the abolitionist movement was all Christians. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. There were a bunch of abolitionists in America during slavery who were not born-again believers. Oh, wait, so you're telling me that they can still ascertain objective truths such as that all humans are persons and should have a natural right to life and liberty? Yeah. So what is the case for our position? And, and how can we articulate that in the public square and to Dr. Frankenstein Fauci without citing Bible verses to make our case? Well, I actually agree with Dr. Fauci. We should follow the science. Follow the science. I am science. Did you hear the left suggest recently that if you disagree publicly with Dr. Fauci, that maybe it should be labeled a hate crime? Did you see that at the end of last year? No, I'm not joking. It's like... Yes, it's all about power. But nowhere is their lust for power more evident than the issue of abortion. However, their victim class is so powerless that the unborn becomes a very convenient political opponent, don't they? Well, let's follow the science, Fauci. Something you need to know about Fauci, um, through the NIAID, he funds the University of Pittsburgh, where they scalp the heads of aborted babies born between 18 and 24 weeks old, some of whom could have survived outside the womb if delivered and cared for by heroic doctors in a neonatal unit. They take the scalps of those children, like old school Indians, insert them subcutaneously on lab rats, and they create what we call humanized mice. The mice then grows the infant human hair that would have grown on the scalp of that child had they not been aborted, and then they use those humanized mice to test experiments to solve and find a cure for staph infections. So the baby simply becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit for eternal life. Does that sound new? No. Pagan societies and cultures have been doing that for literally thousands of years. So just next time you hear Dr. Fauci say, follow the, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just articulating the science, just know that his science is the same science as the Democrat Party in 1850. Namely, not all humans are persons, except that wasn't science. That was your metaphysical, philosophical view of personhood, and it was a very dangerous, botched, bigoted view of personhood that you would never allow, allow to be wielded against you, because then your rights might be compromised. Listen to me very clearly. Today's Democrat party believes the same thing of the Democrat party in 1850, that not all humans are persons. They acknowledged the black man to be a human, but they said he wasn't a person. The Nazis acknowledged that Jews were humans, but they said they weren't persons. The Heathkirch, the German Supreme Court, denied personhood to Jews. 1973, Roe v. Wade, Justice Harry Blackman. The term person is used in the Constitution, does not include the unborn. The next time you hear someone say the unborn is a human but not a person, you want, you want, some, uh, you want some ideological pistols? Here's two questions to ask someone next time they tell you, they admit to you that, yeah, the unborn, they're human but they're not a person. Firstly, ask them, what's the difference between a human and a person? Any difference they give you will be a difference found amongst all born people as well. Then ask them, have you ever met a human that's not a person? 
Because I haven't. I just find it fascinating that you know humans who aren't persons. Like, do you have a picture of one on your iPhone? Can I see one? Well, then that pro-choicer would probably say, oh, here, just jump in my time machine with Marty McFly, and let's go back to 1850. Right. Right, because your same party believed the same thing then about a different victim class, who they said were human non-persons. Yes, history repeats itself. Unfortunately, one of the things that continues to repeat itself is the silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs. So let's follow the science, shall we, Dr. Fauci? The science of embryology teaches that from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. I didn't cherry pick those terms in order to, sound the, to make the pro-life case sound more intellectually tenable. You'll find those terms in virtually any embryology textbook on any university campus anywhere in the country that hasn't banned real science in favor of, of a political ideology <laughs> like UC Berkeley where women are men now and men can be women and unborn babies are not persons. Well, that's not science. That's a very dangerous philosophical view of the person. But real science says the unborn is a distinct living and whole human being. What do those terms mean? Let me give you a brief description of this so that like, you're prepared to articulate that case to, to follow the science uh, tyrannical Democrats today. What's distinct mean? It's unique, separate, one of a kind. You're completely distinct. There's only one of you. There will only ever be one of you. I'm not you and you're not me. Okay, well, huh, the science says the unborn is distinct from the moment of conception. But what's the rallying cry of the pro-choice movement? My body, my choice. That assumes that how many bodies are involved? One, my body, right? They're not saying our bodies, my choice. That's what they should say, right? Our bodies, but my choice to kill one of them. So they're assuming there's one body involved. But the science says that from the moment of conception, you're a distinct human being. So the body in her body is not her body. That's the science, okay? It's, it's interesting. The left will acknowledge that abortion kills something. Did you know this? Let's see. Um, Dr. Warren Hearn is an abortionist. Still is. Still kills babies. He wrote a textbook on how to do it. It's called Abortion Practice. About a, about a pretty accurate, succinct name, yeah. Abortion Practice. And he, t he said at a Planned Parenthood conference decades ago, here's what he said. We have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denying an act of destruction by the operator. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. So does abortion kill something? Well, according to Dr. Warren Hearn, the person who kills babies, it does. How about Camille Paglia, a radical pro-choice feminist who teaches at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, who wrote a Salon.com article in 2008, where she said, hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. How about Faye Waddleton, the president of Planned Parenthood in the 90s, who said in a 1997 interview with Ms. Magazine the following. She said, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any, uh, so any signal that abortion is not killing, any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence. 
a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Okay, so I decided for you, a feminist pro-choice activist, the former president of Planned Parenthood, and an abortionist who says, yeah, of course abortion is killing. So here's an interesting question. If abortion always kills something, why isn't every woman dead after an abortion if it's just her body? Because following the science means to say that the body in her body is not her body. Distinct. Got it? There you go. That's the science you can recite next time to a, a pro-choice, not all humans are persons activists. Living, because dead things don't grow. Did you know that? It's wild. Dead things don't grow. And the unborn child meets all the requirements for a living thing that we learned in sixth grade biology if we weren't smoking pot, if we were actually paying attention. They meet all the requirements for a living thing, okay? And they're directing their own internal growth from within, right? I have two children. My wife never woke me up in the middle of the night pregnant saying, babe, babe, come here, come whisper to my uterus. Come remind baby to grow. We don't want her to forget. Because parents don't will their unborn children to develop Unborn children develop themselves from within, independent of the wishes of their parents. So they're, uh, what's the word? Living and whole. Distinct living and whole. What's a whole human being? Please don't confuse wholeness with like level of development. Don't confuse being a whole human being with having realized certain cognitive abilities or functions. Does that make sense? What's a whole human being? A whole human being is simply a human being who already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Here's what I mean by this. I'm 30, okay? I'm not 40. My wife recently found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. And she said, hallelujah, Jesus. She was really encouraged by that fact, and I really didn't know what to make of it. I'm still trying to, maybe you can pray for my marriage, but... My point is, is that there are aspects of my mental development I have not realized yet. Does that mean I'm not a whole human being now? No. Just like your teenagers have not realized their full level of development in virtue of being younger. Does that mean they're not a whole human being? Well, well if you have teenagers, maybe don't answer that question. But. So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development but when did the continuum of human development begin? Follow the science back to the moment of conception. There's the science, distinct living and whole. Now, you make that, oh, let me, actually, let me drive this point home with one more analogy. You guys remember Polaroid cameras? Yes. Right, all the young people are like, Polo what? Is that the new iPhone? No, no, it spits the photo out as soon as you take it and you start shaking it while it develops, right? Let's say that some of you won tickets to a safari excursion in Africa. You get to go out into the wildlife, into the bush, right? You, and you get to see elephants and lions and all this stuff. And the tour guide tells you over the intercom in this like really like tricked out air-conditioned plasma screen TV, you know, bus. Hey, he says, we're entering an area where a black jaguar was sighted last tour. Now, if you know anything about black jaguars, they're one of the least photographed animals on the planet except for maybe like bottom dwellers on, on the ocean. But above water, they're one of the most elusive beasts that, that there are actually. Certainly of that size, right? Pretty cool, right? So you're, you're pumped, you're like, ooh, I, maybe I'll see a black jaguar, you know? And uh, after a couple hours, you have sunset, and then those last few minutes of twilight, no black jaguar. So all of you iPhone users, you know, you go back to watching your Netflix or whatever, right? But the Polaroid camera person, you know, kind of hipster, kind of kicks it old school, doesn't he? He still has a flip phone kind of thing, you know what I mean? And they have their Polaroid camera. And so they have their eyes glued to the window. And in the last few minutes of twilight, to their luck, a black jaguar sprints out from the bushes, leaps across the path in front of their bus, and you capture a picture of him airborne. 
by the time that Jaguar lands and the photo gets spit out, he's gone and no one else has seen him. But you stand up in the bus and you're shaking this photo. I got a picture of a black Jaguar. At that point, <clears throat> I reach behind your right shoulder. I tear the photo out of your hands. I rip it up into little pieces and I throw it out the window. It's okay. It's just a thought experiment, okay? <laughs> Some of you are looking like staring daggers at me. And what if I respond to your open-mouthed horror and I said, brother, sister, chill out, calm down. That wasn't a picture of a black jaguar. It was just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. Now, you'd probably say, Seth, what are you talking about? <laughs> the, the, the jaguar was already there. We just couldn't see him yet. Everything that was necessary for the photo to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. It just needed time. That's what I mean when I say from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being who already had everything you needed to realize your full growth and development as a participating member of the human species, even if we couldn't see you yet. You also just needed time. You see, people confuse prenatal development with like a Corvette assembly line. We, sometimes we think about the unborn as having these different pieces added. And then at some point, it's had enough construction and pieces added that it becomes the thing that it's going to be. Does that make sense? Because would you think that a full Corvette was there on the assembly line with just the frame? No. Would you think a full Corvette was there with the frame and the engine and the steering wheel? Probably not yet, right? It might not be until almost every piece was added that you're like, now it's a Corvette. Because that is a constructed thing, right? It's a property item, and it's a constructed thing, and it, and it gradually unfolds itself into the thing that it will be. That's not how prenatal development works. We don't gradually unfold our prenatal selves into the, into the future human we will be. No, we are already entirely present at the moment of conception, and we gradually unfold our abilities and our functions. But the whole human being is already there from the moment of conception. This is why the culture sometimes looks at you like a deer in the headlights when you say that the unborn child at four weeks in the womb is as much of a person with the same level of rights as grandma and grandpa. Well, actually, sorry, the left hates grandma and grandpa. They're all for euthanasia, right? I'm sorry, like 50-year-olds. Yes, by the way, <laughs> ideas have consequences. So if you, if you determine personhood based off of, off of utilitarianism, functionalism, and cognitive abilities, and then the, the preborn doesn't meet that litmus test, so you say you can kill them, guess what? They do that at the end of life, too. That was that Mildred Jefferson line, right? Today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely to be the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows that a little later, it's you with your political and moral views that don't fit into our new distorted order. So that's why people look at you like a deer in the headlights when you say the zygote is a person with rights because they view prenatal development as this construction process where other pieces are added and not until almost every piece is added is there a whole entity. But that's not how we began, and that's not how we were developed or grown. So that's the science. Now, you articulate that for someone. By the way, did I cite any Bible verses to make my case right now? <laughs> no. But am I articulating biblical beliefs nonetheless? Yes. yes, because all truth is God's truth. Okay. Okay, so you make that case to someone, and you know what most pro-choicers admit today to you? They, they actually admit that you're right, it is a human. The old mantras and talking points of the pro-choice movement circa the 70s and 80s used to be like, it's a parasite. You remember that one? It's a parasite in the mother's body. Right? Or it's not a human yet. Or they say, it's a potential human, but it's not a human yet. 
the left has largely abandoned most of those old school talking points. Their new strategy is to admit that it is a human. Like we know that, like it's a human, but it doesn't matter because it's not a person. Now you and I would never separate those terms, right? It's like Ryan, he's a wonderful human being. He's one of my favorite people. Oh look, I just use person and human synonymously. But the left has always, by the way, the practitioners of genocide have always separated the term human from person. And then used euphemisms to dehumanize their victim class to make it seem more acceptable to abuse that type of human beings. How do you respond to someone who says the unborn is a human but not a person? You make a case for human equality. And that case for human equality is very simple. It goes something like this. There is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. I'll shorten that sentence for you, yeah? There's no value-giving difference, meaning a difference that matters. There's no value-giving difference between you, the unborn human, and you, the born human, that makes it okay to kill you, the unborn human. Now, does that mean that there are no differences between unborn people and born people? Of course not. If your mother still has a 16-week photo of you in the womb from the ultrasound, and we hold it up to your face today, could we identify any differences? Of course. There's a lot of differences. You look very different. I'm not saying there's no differences between zygotes and teenagers. I'm saying none of those differences matter to the question of your rights. Because the only way to maintain this idea of human equality, which the left is obsessed about, right? How do they defend all of their policy prescriptions and, and pushes? Under the language of equality. What was the gay marriage signal? Remember? The equal sign? They called it marriage. They didn't call it sodomy. They called it marriage equality. Right? How do they call socialism? Equity. Right? Dis redistributing all of the resources so everyone's equal. But you're not equal. Right? <laughs> equity is not equality. So they love this idea of equality. But the pro-abortion movement cannot provide a philosophical foundation for the human equality that they want by compromising it by being pro-choice. Because being pro-choice is, in short, means not all humans are equal. Being pro-choice means that you reject that first line from our founding documents. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident, if you translate that for Gen Zers, it goes something like this. Right, it's like, like, I shouldn't have to actually make a defense of these premises. They're so axiomatic and self-evident that, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To be pro-choice is to deny those foundational premises by saying, no, not all humans are equal because you want to murder unborn children, therefore you don't believe they're equal. So let's use the equality that they love to point out that their argument compromises equality. Does that make sense? So here's how you do this. Remember, what was that first question I told you? When someone says the unborn is a human but not a person, ask them, what's the difference between a human and a person? Well, here are the differences that they'll often tell you. They will usually resort to about four. These four differences will kind of meet, will kind of uh, provide the, the, the subtitles for every pro-choice argument that goes underneath it. These four differences will encapsulate almost every argument for abortion. And they are summarized in the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, SLED. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. Size, level of development, environment or location where you are, and dependency. Yes, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child, right? 
but the newborn child is smaller than the infant, and the infant is smaller than the toddler, and the toddler is smaller than the teenager. I'm six foot three, which means I'm larger than 98% of the audiences that I speak to. If you're under six foot three, I got bad news for you guys. You're not, per you're not a person, actually. Um, I know that's strange. Just hang with me. All right, I'm going to take you to, to, to Woke Academy. And I can actually murder you um, if you're under six foot three, because in, it's actually reproductive health care. Because you see, in murdering you, I prevented you from reproducing, right? Because you're dead. So that's why it's called reproductive health care. Now you would go, uh, Seth, uh, size has no relevance to our rights. Right. Now do abortion. Yes, the unborn child is smaller, but that doesn't mean they have less rights. Shaquille O'Neal doesn't have any more rights than Barbara Streisand, okay? Because size does not ground our rights. What about level of development? Yes, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. And because the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, the left likes to say that the unborn child can be killed because they haven't realized certain developmental markers that they argue makes you a person. That makes sense? It's kind of weird. Let me give you some examples. Um, Self-awareness. They'll say the unborn child is so less developed that they're not self-aware yet. And so they assume that to be a person with the right to life, you have to be self-aware. Does that make sense? But did you know the recent science has shown that infants are not self-aware until months after birth? Right, who's ha ever had a child? Uh, an infant, right? You remember the cute little outfit you put her in, right? Now, I guess back then maybe you were using Polaroid camera. Today it's all like selfies and iPhones. Look at me and my little baby, right? Is your newborn daughter saying, wow, thanks mom for the cute outfit. I look amazing. I I'm aware of myself as a unique individual that's never existed before and will never exist again and I can make sense of my own liberty. No, no, baby Sally's not saying that. Baby Jack is not saying that. They're not self-aware yet. But can we kill infants before the developmental marker of self-awareness? Usually the left goes, no, you sicko. And I go, no, it was a thought experiment. You're the sicko. I'm showing you that if you ground personhood in self-awareness, which the preborn doesn't have, then you can also justify infanticide for infants who are not self-aware. Does that make sense? Let me give you one more example. The, the left will say, well, the unborn child doesn't have any desires. So there's this weird argument they make. It's a little bit, you'll find it more in the academy with philosophers. You won't find this argument as much like on a woke, pink-haired, you know, lesbian dance theory major at UC Berkeley. Um, that is a major, by the way. I don't just say that to, like, get a laugh. Lesbian dance theory at UC Berkeley, yeah. So uh, you won't find this argument as much, like, on the street level. But here's an argument they make. They say, if I haven't violated your desires, I haven't violated your rights. So they'll say, the unborn child doesn't desire a right to life. Right? Have you ever heard people say, well, the unborn doesn't know they're being aborted? Right? Like, what's it to them? Like, they don't know. Right? So what are they saying? The baby in the womb doesn't have a desire for, for life to go on living. Right? Well, um, hmm, interesting. Ever heard of suicidality? What does it mean to have suicidal tendencies? It means to not have a desire to go on living. Oh, just like the fetus. So, hey, pro-choicer. You just made a philosophical argument to murder every teenager with suicidal tendencies thanks to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Dr. Fauci who shut down the country, kept young people at home from hanging out with their friends, and now suicidality is, is it, is it tripled now? It's something crazy right now, especially in California. They're not persons, right, pro-choicer? Because the suicidally tendent person, like the fetus, doesn't have a desire, desire to go on living. One more example. Uh, Buddhists try to reach nirvana. Nirvana is the eradication of all desires. Now, I don't think this is possible, but let's grant for the sake of argument that it is. If a Buddhist reached nirvana, they would have zero desires, including 
no desire to go on living, like the fetus. So, hey, leftists, can we murder Buddhist nirvana people? Because like the unborn child in the womb, you just said, if I don't violate your desires, I haven't violated your rights. The fetus and the Buddhist both don't desire a right to life. Therefore, I haven't violated their rights by murdering them, right? And they go, um, I don't like it when you apply my bigotry this side of the womb. <laughs> well, then maybe you should abandon your pro-abortion bigotry. It's not my fault for pointing out where the, the heinous conclusions that your premises lead to. It's your fault for accepting those premises. Okay, so that was level of development. Does that make sense? So they say because the child is less developed, they haven't realized these developmental markers or functions, but we can find an example of born people who also fail to meet that litmus test. Size, level of development, environment. What's that mean? Location. They say, well, you can kill the baby in the womb because they're in a different environment. Yeah, it's called a womb. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers. It's where we all came from. Or to quote Ronald Reagan, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. <laughs> and the left goes, humana, 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 what a stupid pithy, that's just a Republican talking point. No, it is weird, it is ironic that you sanction the slaughter of children in a womb you once came from. Every pro-choicer is very grateful that their mother was not exercising her right to choose. But they say you can kill the baby in the womb because it's in that location, because it's in the womb. To which you and I go, well, why does that matter, right? By the way, you can get ready to tweet this. The Democrat Party once said that blacks were the property of plantation owners whose land they lived on. And today they say babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. But to quote Frank Beckwith, where one is has no bearing on who one is. Your rights remain intact regardless of your location, but they say because the baby is in the property of women's bodies, they're not a person until they exit the birth canal. Ever heard of partial birth abortions? Let me use this as a brief example. If, if there are young children, doesn't look like it, you can plug their ears, but this is the reality and it, and it, it, it bolsters our point and for you to make this point to defend life. Partial birth abortions are now illegal, but not thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that fake feminist pro-abortion bigot on the Supreme Court, who in two different Supreme Court decisions, Gonzalez versus Carhartt and, I forgot the name of the other one, two different Supreme Court cases where Ruth Bader Ginsburg tried to either legalize partial birth abortions or after it was illegal, she tried to overturn the ban on partial birth abortions. Does that make sense? What's a partial birth abortion? Well, it was when you would deliver a baby with their feet first, this is hard, okay? So you'd forcibly deliver the child in the late second or early third, or early sec, late second trimester or early third trimester. But you wouldn't really pull the whole baby out because if you do that, then it's not called abortion, it's called infanticide, right? Because the only way they can call it abortion is, is as long as you kill the baby in the womb, right? As long as it's in the womb, it's an abortion. But if it's outside the womb, it's called infanticide. Does that, does that make sense? So you would leave the head and the shoulders in the birth canal, and while the legs were flailing outside, literally expecting the warmth of their mother's arms or the doctor's hands, you would take scissors and you would insert them up the birth canal and you would stab the baby into the back of the neck with the scissors. You would open them so that there's literally a gaping hole in the back of the infant's skull and you would stick a suction vacuum catheter tube into that, that hole and you would suck their brain out. Don't worry, it's not infanticide, it's just reproductive health care because we killed the baby in the womb. 
And remember, her body, her choice. Okay, what's my point? What's my point in using that example? If your location and environment determines your rights, then I guess the legs and the buttocks were persons, but the head and the shoulder were insensate blobs of non-person property tissue. Because that part of the baby was still in the mother's body, therefore it had no rights. Anyone who has two brain cells to rub together knows that that's absolute nonsense bigotry and only makes sense in the la-la land known as secular progressivism. Hear me very, very clearly, secular progressivism rots the brain because it is an alternative fantasy ideology based on Marxism, based on, at least in abortion, demonology, because all of this goes back to that first lie in the garden, which is that, Eve, if you eat the apple and do it my way, you'll be as gods, and you'll get to decide who lives and who dies. The womb was created to be the most safe place for you to reside. Did you know that? And did you know that the womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America today? Did you know many women who are pregnant and have cancer will still undergo chemotherapy? And in the vast majority of cases, the baby is born perfectly fine and flawless and unaffected by the chemo. What does that tell you, brothers and sisters? That the womb was created to protect you. And it has become the most dangerous place for a human being to be. You are more likely to be killed in the womb than you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. They say the baby's dependent on the mother, right? So therefore, it's her right to decide whether she's going to lend that dependency and support to a child that in 99% of cases she created consensually. You know that abortions in the case of rape are half of a percent of the annual abortions? So in almost every circumstance, the child who's being considered being killed was created consensually. But it's not a person, we can kill it because it's my body, so I'll decide whether I'm going to allow my body to be used or forced to use in a way that supports a child that I have labeled unwanted, or to quote the Nazis, untermensch, subhuman, not really a full human like us. If we only have rights and value when we're not dependent on someone or something else. Can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, and caretakers? Like the unborn child, they're also dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Who wants to get on board with killing those people? Well, a lot of members of the left today actually do. That's why they're pushing euthanasia and assisted suicide, which is based off of the same false anthropology and philosophy of the person. But it's interesting. If the child can survive outside the womb, which the courts have sort of subjectively labeled at 24, 23 weeks, they call it viability. Viability means when you can survive outside the womb without mom's body. But viability changes every few years with scientific advancements that enable us to make children viable at earlier and earlier stages. If you tell a pro-choicer who says, the baby's not a person because it's dependent on mom, and when it's not dependent on mom, then it has rights. Oh, okay, so you, so you want to ban third trimester abortions and all abortions after 24 weeks. And they go, oh, no, I know, it's her right. Okay, so you're just using dependency as another argument to smokescreen your true agenda, 
which is abortions through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Brothers and sisters, you do need to know this. Abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy in this country. Yes, there are states that have passed pro-life legislation that do help save the unborn, but Roe versus Wade and its companion case, Doe versus Bolton, both in 1973, said that if that a woman, <clears throat> that abortion was not allowed in the third trimester unless failure to get a late-term abortion endangered her life or health. And you know how they defined health? So broadly, you could drive a Mack truck through it. So the courts later had to explain what they meant by health, and they said health pertains to social health, familial health, familial health, social health, family health. Wait, so that means like if you're arguing with your husband and you're kind of stressed out, that, that's, that's, that pregnancy is affecting your, your familial health? Yeah. And guess who gets to decide if the woman's definition of health meets the legal requirement to grant her a third trimester abortion? The abortionist. The man with a financial incentive to, to accept any definition of health because which abortions are the most expensive? Third trimester abortions. And he's going to get a lot of blood money in return for killing that third trimester child as long as he accepts the woman's definition of health, which is I'm kind of stressed out, so I need this, this third trimester abortion. So you just need to know that. As we wrap up here, because I realize I went over, that's what we believe, okay? So we're contending against the same ideology. The same ideology. Not all humans are persons. And the problem with putting up with that is not only do we have blood on our hands, but eventually we'll come to realize and wake up that all of our other rights have been taken away as well. And unfortunately, the people have often not woken up to that reality until it's actually too late. Until it's actually too late. And that's our prayers. That, that won't be happening in America as it is in so many other places. What are we facing? We're facing an alternative religion. So when woke pastors tell you, I don't preach against politics because I just talk about the gospel, what he's telling you is he's allowing the other side to define the terms of engagement by labeling an actual genocide a political issue because the left knows how much pastors fear the label of politics, how much pastors hate being associated with this word, this dirty word called politics. And so they'll abdicate and allow the left to take more cultural and political ground to further their agenda because they know that the politically impotent pastors care more about keeping the tithing of their Democrat congregants than they do speaking life and liberty in the public square. So they'll stay silent on the actual genocide of baby image bearers in order to continue not offending their congregants and not being labeled by the secular culture as a political activist. Well, if being a political activist means standing against the genocide of God's baby image bearers, I'm the most radical political activist you've ever met, to paraphrase William Wilberforce. So we're facing an alternative religion known as secular progressivism. And so for the left, abortion is not just one issue among many. Because what happened every time a Supreme Court seat opened up during the Trump administration? What was every Chiron in headline? Was it about immigration? No. Was it about transgender bathroom laws? No. Nope. What was it about? Abortion, every single time. Every Chiron in headline. Do they care about those other political preferences? Or, yeah. But every headline was, they're going to take Roe versus Wade. If that doesn't tell you how much they care about abortion, I don't know what will. And here's why. For the secular progressive movement, abortion is their high sacrament. Because abortion says, you must die so I can live, but Christ says, no, I must die so you can live. This goes right back to the first lie of the serpent to Eve in Genesis 3. Eat the apple, get woke, see it a different way. God's holding out on you, and you shall be as gods. But they were already like gods. Because they were already going to live forever. But they accept the serpent's lie, and it's the lie that has led to every other lie. You see, the secular progressive movement is seeking to secure that which has already been procured for them on Calvary. 
which is to defeat death and live forever. If anything hasn't revealed to you the, the hysterical fear of death in the last two years, I don't know what will. Yes, the secular post-Christian society, guys, fears death. So they're actually trying to get what we already have. What's 1 Corinthians 15, 26 say? The last enemy to be defeated is death. So what they don't realize is, oh, this already has been. <laughs> Christ says, I've already defeated it. Stop being a genocidal, pubescent, crazy maniac. Humble yourselves, repent, and get that which you're already securing to proc- or procuring to secure. Peter Kraft, the Catholic philosopher, put this better than I ever could when he said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The culture of death, not ironically, brothers and sisters, actually says the same exact words. Oh, it's almost like it's a spiritual battle. This is my body, my choice, and I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, ye shall be as gods. And a god gets to decide who lives and who dies, right? But a god also gets to live forever. Isn't that what makes a god a god? They're eternal. The unborn child... And abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. You must die, baby, so I can live. Live with my pursuit of happiness. Live with my preferences. But not just that, brothers and sisters, it goes deeper on a spiritual playing field. Live longer. Defeat death. Now, I know this sounds strange, and you're like, Ryan, get this guy out of the pulpit. What a kooky weirdo. Let me, actually, you need to see this. If you don't see how abortion is the high sacrament of secular progressivism, you will not be prepared to contend against this alternative religion. We kill babies through embryonic stem cell research in order to get their stem cells and allegedly use them to solve diseases so we can live a little bit longer. So the baby becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit of eternal life. We kill babies through fetal tissue research or fetal organ harvesting, which is a euphemism for dead baby chopping. And we justify it like Fauci does with the argument that, well, hey, it will benefit the human race. We'll use their tissues to perform experiments on humanized mice to find solutions for staph infections so we can live a little bit longer, or we'll use it to produce vaccines and biological drugs and even makeup so that we can live a little bit longer. Scientists last year were pushing to drop the 14-day limit on growing human beings artificially in labs. Why? Because they wanted to see how far they could develop a human in a lab. Why? Because if the baby was more developed, they could experiment with gene editing. Oh, does that kill the baby? Yes, it does. But you see, they become an acceptable sacrifice because if we can edit out of the gene code certain diseases or susceptibilities to disorders that we don't like, we'll sacrifice the children first, apply it to ourselves later when it's safe because, God forbid, my rights are compromised, and then we can get to live just a little bit longer. The baby simply becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is Satan's sacrament. Because Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't. So he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of the father and hurts the church. And one in four women 
have had an abortion, and it's been estimated by studies and polls that probably 30 to 40% of women attending church on a regular basis have had at least one abortion. Our silence is deafening, church, and it communicates that we don't care or that this issue doesn't matter, but it does. If Planned Parenthood had existed in the first century, you can bet that Mary would have met all of the Planned Parenthood prospect checkboxes for an abortion. Teenager unmarried with a fiancé threatening to leave her, no financial stability, and a family in society which would have treated her as a social pariah. She would have met every prospect checkbox for an abortion that Planned Parenthood uses today. Christ enters human history in a womb to identify with us at our most vulnerable stage, declaring that life is intrinsically valuable from the moment that you're a human being. So what are we facing? We're facing the sacrament of Satan, that's all. We're facing the high sacrament of secular progressivism, the issue that they care about more than anything else. And if Roe Roe versus Wade gets overturned in June, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, the riots, the mostly peaceful summer of love of 2020, will look like child's play compared to what happens if the church of Jesus Christ wakes up and begins to tear down the high places of Moloch and Baal. Satan has always been behind the killing of babies. He was behind the killing of babies by Herod in Jerusalem and by Pharaoh in Egypt. He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth so that he can eat the Christ and be he's behind the genocide of abortion today. He's a lion who prowls around looking for children to devour. Satan has always hated babies for they remind him of his ultimate and pending defeat by a baby Christ prenatal deity God man who entered human history in a uterus to defeat that serpent. And when we stand before God in the day of judgment and we're asked, son and daughter, what did you do to end the genocide of my babies? Well, an alternative religion was ripping them limb from limb and justifying it with the words, follow the science. What did you do? And I pray that your words with my words would be that of William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist who simply said, Lord, let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene, brothers and sisters. God is waiting to see if his church will wake up. And the world is watching the bride of Christ to see if this will be our finest hour or our final hour. We will owe an account not just to God, but to our children and our grandchildren for what we did in this season. All of us like to think we would have been abolitionists. All of us like to think we would have been Oscar Schindler's, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, and Sophie Scholl's. The answer to the question of how you would have lived in Nazi Germany or how you would have lived in chattel slavery America is how you engage the issue of abortion today because they're wrong for the same reasons. How? In each case, the government denied personhood to an entire class of human beings and used euphemisms to dehumanize their victim class out of existence so that it was acceptable in the public to abuse them. They're wrong for the same exact reasons. That's how powerful bigotry is, brothers and sisters. Bigotry blinds you to what would otherwise be obvious truths about human nature. The obvious truth about human nature that our founders articulated, self-evident, axiomatic, duh, that we're created in the image of God, equal with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is what we're facing. I'll finish with this. Greg Cunningham, one of the godfathers of the pro-life movement, and my personal godfather, once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable, while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they oppose abortion are not lifting a finger to stop it. And those that do lift that finger 
do just enough to salve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. The church in America today who says they're pro-life for decades has been doing just enough to fight abortion to make themselves feel good about fighting abortion. We have the Pregnancy Resource Center director at our church once a year and a table out back once a year. You've never met a more pro-life church. If the German church had said that in 1940, we would have called them syncretist heretics. We're a very anti-Holocaust church. Um, we have Dietrich Bonhoeffer come share once a year. Uh, while millions of Jews are being murdered. Uh, and we have a connect table to donate to um, the local confessing church fund uh, to try to wake up the church to end the Holocaust. Um, and we see the smoke and the ashes of human bodies that fall on the steeple of our church during worship. But don't worry, we're a super anti-Holocaust church. We have been like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan who were anti-street mugging, but walked by on the other side of the road when there was a street mugged dude. We have been walking by and driving by on the other side of the road where we know our unborn neighbors have their death scheduled on the calendar and we tell ourselves we're pro-life. And we tell ourselves we would have been an abolitionist in 1850. No, we wouldn't have. So now that you hate me, what can we do? Connect with Turning Point Faith to contend for faith in the public square. Go to lovelife.org. Pastor Ryan will be sharing more about love life in the coming months for how the church can show up mobilized outside of every abortion center in the country. Every day they're open, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. And we know that when Christians do that, abortion industries have reported that they see a 60 to 80% drop in their abortion appointments. I wonder why. Because when the church stands up, Satan sits down, brothers and sisters. This is the high sacrament. This is the turning point, no pun intended, for the country and for the pro-life movement, and most importantly, for the church, the most powerful organism for change, the sleeping giant who's seemingly been in a coma for the last hundred years, and if she were to wake up, everything would change. This is a stewardship issue for Christians, but selfishly, it's how we secure freedom and liberty for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. Or to quote Ronald Reagan, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like to live in the United States where men were free. The preborn has not been free for 50 years, and now you're experiencing that tyranny coming home for you because of our apathy towards the sacrament of Satan. It's time to wake up. I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Wow. Thank you, Seth. Wow. Mic drop right there. I told you that he would be saying things that provocative, provoke you to think. And I, I, I know there are some, maybe you can join us online, that were offended. And, and I'm actually excited to see where that takes us. That we actually get provoked to action. That we actually do something with these words, right? Jesus says all the time, all throughout scripture, don't be a hearer only, right? A doer. And so I am excited that Seth has partnered with Love Life and there's so many things that we want to do. Um, I'm excited because I know it's not just on me, that God's been stirring it within our church for a while. Some of you guys have been meeting to pray on Monday nights. I'm praying you guys get an increase on that tomorrow night. Some more people coming to pray and figuring out not just to pray that it stops out there, but what are we doing? What is Osborne Neighborhood Church going to do locally here to be a house of refuge, to be doing something to visit those, um, I, you know, I keep preaching, we're way over, right? There's so many things to do. 
And um, as we just close this service, I'm going to have Daniel come up, and we'll just close with one last worship song. And um, during this last worship song, I'm going to invite you um, to give. There's opportunities to give to all kinds of causes, but I would love to bless Seth with a love offering. And um, we've kind of, as a church, already committed to a certain dollar amount that I'd love to give them. But um, I would love for you and I to give and exceed that dollar amount. Uh, and so if you um, just can prepare that, um, we already took, collected our tithe and offering. So everything that goes into this offering right now is going to go to his ministry. And so just know that if you want to give tithe and offering, do that at the time. This is specific uh, for Seth's ministry. Uh, so you can prepare that. And um, we will collect that as, this, as we sing this last worship song. And um, are we still singing the same song or we got a different song? All right. So this I almost might seem, I feel like this morning there's been different flavors, right? Different things going on. This might almost seem offensive in the flavor as you sing this song. But I need to know, like as Seth said, there's so many hard truths and things that might seem restrictive and, oh, what can we do? It's like how we started the worship. We declare things. We remind ourselves of who Jesus is. We remind ourselves of who we are as a church. That we've been bought with a price. We belong to him. And so we're going to sing a song where I do see a victory. I see abortion coming to an end. And like he said, it doesn't mean that it just legally comes to an end and then everything takes care of. No, I see ourselves, the church, arising to love on people, to encourage people, to forgive people, but to also stand in the face of the enemy and say, no, you shall not pass. So as we sing this last song, I'm going to encourage you to, to stir up some passion. To say, I see a victory. Even if I don't see it emotionally or intellectually, we're going to declare it from our